And now we have this remarkable resource for human psychology, this remarkable resource for learning about how meditation works. The primary Buddhist teaching, that primary right view, says that nothing lasts forever, that at the core of our desire for things to last forever is sort of a, a yearning, a feeling of being uncomfortable, of wanting more, sometimes straight out pain and suffering, and that we need to interrogate all of those conditions. And as we pay attention, we see that there is no candidate for the pain, that this thing that we have conjured within ourselves to be self, in fact, is a bunch of pieces put together, but always in a state of flux, always wanting to hold on, wanting things to be a particular way, and that's the root of our suffering and what the Buddha taught is we can release from that. So in a text called the Satipatthana, he offers a pathway to meditate. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to the Glow Podcast. We're lucky to have Professor Christopher Chappell back to the podcast to discuss mindfulness. Dr. Chapel is Doshi Professor of Indic and Comparative Theology and Founding Director of the Master of Arts in Yoga Studies at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. He's published more than 20 books about Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, yoga, and religion and ecology. He's also a featured instructor on GLOW. Our conversation stretched over two episodes. The first part is about seeking mindfulness and explores the Buddha's journey to give us some signposts along the way. As Professor Chapel points out, it's a tribute to what the Buddha taught that no matter what labels you create or put onto your own identity, like sticky post-it notes, all those post-it notes might eventually want to be examined or may need to come off to experience more happiness and fulfillment. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Professor Chapel. Hi, Chris. So great to be here with you today. I want to say in advance, I typically refer to uh, people with credentials such as yourselves as professor or doctor. And since I've known you for, what, 13, 14 years, and I've been calling you Chris ever since, uh, I'll say once, Professor Chapel. so wonderful <laughs> to be here with you today. I apologize in advance if I default back to Chris. That's the best. Thank you. <laughs> So what I hope to accomplish today is to present this concept of mindfulness potentially in two parts. One, a brief history of this word mindfulness and the general project of liberation and, and why this was something that humans uh, thought was wanted or needed at a particular point in our evolution. And then secondly, where are we at today with mindfulness, and especially here in, in North America? Uh, if we can get into some of your personal experience uh, and its application and, and efficacy uh, in your own life in this chaotic 
entropic world that we find ourselves in. And then ultimately, uh, for a topic like this, I like to disclose that I have uh, some agendas ahead of time. And uh, I think there are two, uh, one being that I hope the, the, our listeners walk away with some historical, philosophical practice, religious, i.e. liberation context for this word mindfulness. And I also hope that the next time uh, one of our listeners may consider uh, attending a retreat, reading a book, hear someone speak, uh, decide uh, on what course to, to purchase, that uh, they might be more curious about that particular teacher's identification with or affiliation with sources or, or tradition, and ultimately be a more discerning consumer of mindfulness content and products, especially as we're seeing it kind of proliferate and uh, take on a, a very sort of contemporary version of of, of mindfulness. And then my second agenda is uh, ultimately, like I mentioned earlier, to uh, uh, spend a bit of time unpacking what mindfulness means for you, uh, both as a scholar and practitioner, and how does it factor in your life, your interior and exterior uh, experience, expression, and, 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 and perceived efficacy of, of how you navigate that. Um, and I want to say one thing at the top that uh, you know, when it comes to words like mindfulness and yoga, it's it's relatively easy, uh, I would assume, for someone like yourself to provide a short definition and description, but of of these words. But brevity tends to omit the vast philosophical, metaphysical, historical, cultural uh, complexity of these words, and um, as well as their meaning, intentions, and, and practical implications. And as I was prepping for our conversation, I was going back to uh, the shelf where I keep all of my books uh, relating to th this topic and pulled out Joseph Goldstein's book on um, mindfulness, a practical guide to awakening. And pretty early on in it, he says, you know, what is mindfulness? And he answers his own question by saying, it's a bit like asking, well, what is art or what is love? <laughs> so uh, uh, this will likely be a long conversation. And I, I hope our listeners find that it's um, worth their time sticking with us through to the end. So to start off with, tell us a bit about yourself and your background and you know why is this topic um, meaningful and important to you and uh, as well as to convey some of your subject matter expertise. Yeah, as you know, I, I tend to go to certain kinds of people for this kinds of information in the same way that if I uh, were searching for a surgeon, I would wanna know about their education expertise uh, and uh, sort of, uh, I don't know, philosophical or um, uh, a practical point of view on how to do things. How does one find mindfulness? And in order to answer that question, biography automatically enters. And to the extent that my experience is a human experience, even though the names, the places, the circumstances, the years will differ, by telling the story of my immersion within mindfulness, I think there will be glimmers of recognition that themselves constitute a form in itself of mindfulness. And let me begin with the term itself. And the term 
in Sanskrit is smriti, which in Pali is sati, and it refers very specifically to the process of memory. But an investigation of the meanderings of the mind, we discover the power of memory, and we discover even more significantly, perhaps, the capacity to put memory at rest. So my journey began as a child, and I had... While I was in grade school, believe it or not, maybe I was in middle school, but I read the Upanishads and had learned a little bit about the life of the Buddha. And a dear friend, now departed, Kenneth Ketwig, said, hey, up in Rochester, Rochester, New York, there's a Zen center and this was the summer of, must have been 1968. The Zen Center had just taken root, and we knocked on the door, and 13 years old, and the door opens, and Roshi Philip Kaplow welcomed us in, entertained our questions, was quite heartened that we, in fact, had read his newly recently published book, Three Pillars of Zen, and politely said, I'm so happy you have this interest. But at that point, he was so overwhelmed with the hundreds and hundreds of people that had come from around the world to begin the Japanese version of mindfulness, which is Zazen, that he politely declined our request to enter his practice stream. Hmm. But nonetheless... I read that book, and it has recipes in the back, recipes for how to meditate. And I sat down in my awkward approximation of sitting cross-legged, and I followed those instructions. At 13. At 13, yes. To breathe in and count one and breathe out and count two, all the way up to 10, and then start all over again. And then it's sad. And so I did this. I did this twice a day for about 20 minutes. So what, what happened was, as I moved into the breath counting, and eventually moved after some weeks into only counting the exhale, I found that this monkey mind and this itchy, twitchy body was able to settle. And at this, and a few months later, uh, my friend Kenneth said, I found a place where we can meditate. So I took my Zazen to the Religious Society of Friends, the Quakers, a couple of blocks from the Zen Center, and sat in corporate meditation, that is group silence, all through high school, once a week on Sunday mornings. And in fact, it was in that very room that I met my wife, Maureen, it was in that very room where we married when we were still teenagers. We were 
so blessed to find each other at such a young age. That's lucky. Yeah, it was very lucky. And as a result of the joy that I found from the calm that that practice brought, I kept up with that. I kept up with meditating, not always twice a day, but at least once a day. And I kept up with that attentiveness to the count and began on my afternoon rambles. And I'll just set the stage a little bit that makes the story slightly more interesting, is that my parents rented a farmhouse that was built in 1815, owned by one of the families that sponsored Philip Kaplow to America. And she became my confidant and advisor on this path. Her name was Lee Mulligan. She still is a teacher and counselor in Linwood, New York. And this was in the township of Rush, New York. And I would wander the fields and forests on this glorious farm. The family had assembled the Mulligan farm about 3,000 acres. And eventually, other members of the Zen Center took up residence in some of the tenant farmhouses. So I would see them when I would be out walking. And I began to lace my walk into account of eight steps forward on the inhale, and I would play with it all sorts of different ways. And what this allowed for was a spaciousness and attentiveness. Now, four seasons, spring, the tender green leaves bursting forth, summer, hot, sultry, autumn, the glorious display of the foliage, and then winter, walking through the snow, hearing my feet crunching, 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 and keeping with the breath. Now, all the while, of course, I'm in first middle school, as we now call it, it was junior high school then, and then high, and then high school, and going off to college. And I knew from my senior year that this was my life, was to find out how this attentiveness, how this mindfulness happens. And all through these years, I've been fascinated with what we call adhyatma in Sanskrit, with the process of reflection on oneself. I've been fascinated with peeling away all of those layers of dense memories and all of those impulses, what the Buddhists called hatred, greed, and delusion. And yeah, I would get angry at stuff. And yeah, I was greedy for whatever it was that was available, at least in my mind. And then there is the delusion, you know, thinking, oh, if I could only hang out with these people, everyone will like me. Or if I do this, this, and this, all these great things will happen. And in my meditation, it became clear that the true place is that place of repose. The true place is where we don't need to do that. And yet those impulses, what in Buddhism, Jainism, Hinduism, what are called the kleshas, 
they just nod at me. And it became a little bit of a tug, and, tug of war between the quiet inward self and the agitated outward yearning self. So when I went off to university, I was gifted with an introduction to a woman called Grani Anjali Inti, who had just dedicated an ashram on Long Island, of all places. I was living at the time in Buffalo, New York. I was a convinced rural kid and grew up on farms and, again, wandering fields and forests, discovering ponds and streams. Yet, the path led me to Long Island, very densely populated, a lot of hustle and bustle. And in the midst of that hustle and bustle, I found a path, a path of meditation, a path of yoga. And simultaneously, uh, actually started in Buffalo, started chanting Sanskrit, learning Sanskrit grammar, reading the texts of Buddhism, reading the texts of the Vedanta and yoga traditions, and eventually uh, became a professor and have been very blessed to walk the path of practice in a thoughtful way informed by philosophy and history. Yes, in the show notes, we'll post a link to one of her books that you recommended to me a while back. Her name is Gurani Anjali, and the title of that book is The Ways of Yoga. Yeah, we have one coming out, okay, posthumously. Yeah, but that's the one to start with. There's so much in this text that is is wonderful, and, and I can, obviously, your, your your own ways and methods of delivering this information, but I can also see when I read this text, I can see some of your influence <laughs> or where you've been influenced. Her influence on me. Correct, yes. correct. <laughs> you know, like I, I'm looking at uh, just a couple of sections here where she says, to sacrifice, you have to see the other. You have to see the other without demanding anything of the other. And then a few paragraphs down, the only one you can expect something from is yourself. Expect how you can be warm in the moment. Give more and you will be amazed. Then a few pages later, I have a, another thing that I, another section that I outlined. For the yogi, the way one lives, the way one talks, the way one is are all manifestations of transformative intentions. We live in the manifest world, and therefore we have to make manifest who we want to be. So it sounds like it from a very young age, you started with, with a fair amount of intention, this project, this excavation of, well, who am I and who do I want to be in this lifetime? Yeah, there were so many opportunities to access wisdom in those moments. And beginning with Philip Kaplow and the encouragement of the Quakers, continuing with sitting literally at the feet of Grani Anjali, and being in the company of so many remarkable philosophers and theologians, Antonio de Nicholas, a remarkable scholar of all things India, 
had landed shortly before we arrived at Stony Brook, fresh from 15 years in Asia. He had spent three years at the Gandhi Ashram in Gujarat, sitting every day, memorizing, chanting the Bhagavad Gita. And with the philosophers at Fordham University had rethought the Rig Veda. And the Rig Veda is this remarkable 1,008 verse. I don't know quite what word to use, but I'll call it, for lack of a better term, it's a relic from an old, old way of life. And it's been chanted continuously in India for at least 3,500 years. And because the images included and lifted up are um, so compelling, but because the, the language is from a context so very, very long ago, many people just chant it, don't talk a lot about it. And what De Nicholas was able to evince from this was a structure of the human universe, a structure that begins in the reality of chaos and darkness through the blessings of human will, we're able to pierce through that darkness. And one of the great uh, images provided in the Rig Veda is the heroic deeds of Indra, who sends forth the thunderbolt and allows the world to be seen allows the kindling of Agni, the, the light, the lamp that shines wisdom upon the world, paving the way for a dedicated life, a life grounded and rooted in sacrifice. And as one journeys along that pilgrimage, glimmers of it all coming together happen. And the word from this very, very old collection of songs that comes straight through into the English language is the word Rita. And we have this word, it's a point of value even today in English. It's a cousin word. And the word art is Rita. The word artistry is Rita. The word ritual is Rita. The word right, I've got this right, is ritual, is rita. The word order is rita, and the word rhythm is rita. So what Guru Ma would suggest is that we need to be observant. We need to watch the rhythm of life and then jump into the current, jump into the flow, and manifest the world within the rhythms of the world to lift everybody up. And most people don't know that's the first known text where we find the use of the word yoga. The Rig Veda uses the word yoga in its original intent. 
And the cousin word in English is to yoke. And in the Rig Veda, it refers to connecting the horses to the chariot. And this connecting of the horses to the chariot becomes the great metaphor in later literature for controlling the senses. And there's this beautiful painting reproduced throughout the world of Lord Krishna with his prince Arjuna in the chariot. Arjuna trying to control the chariot with these five horses, sometimes six horses, the senses plus the mind. And that metaphor becomes the metaphor for yoga itself. How do we manage to harness together all the experiences within life and go where we need to go. And then as we move chronologically, we enter the time roughly Upanishads. This is the time of the second urbanization that's occurring. Uh, we have uh, the emergence of what are called the, the, the Shramanas who are perhaps as somewhat in distinction compared to more Vedic practices, this concept of internal inner transformation itself being kind of the, the central focal point of the process. How do we make that transition then ultimately into the Buddha and then the, the Satipatthana Sutta? India as a continent is vast and varied. It extends from the Himalayas a thousand miles to the tip Kanyakumari. It extends from the western desert, the Khyber Pass, Afghanistan, a thousand miles to the east, to Burma. And within this densely populated land that has welcomed humans for tens of thousands of years, so many different cultures, so many different ideas have taken shape. And we don't have a time machine except through a bit of archaeology and the archaeology of the remembered songs of the Rig Veda. And we find pieces from even the Greek visitors and the Chinese visitors that help us put together and solve as best we can the mystery of history within India. And it does seem linguistically that the chanters of the Vedas began their work in the Northwest, and that as they began to roll out the technologies of Vedic ritual and Vedic chanting, they encountered and interacted with other communities that had developed equally ancient traditions. And whereas the Brahmins emphasized an external ritual, the shramans, who were vital and active in the northeast segment of India, they brought forth from their forest hermitages this wisdom that philosophizes and intersects with the Vedas. And in fact, because the Upanishads are more discursive, they 
analyze the human condition, they analyze ritual, they analyze society itself, and they postulate how that wonderful moment of moving fully into the rhythm of life can be conceptualized as a state of freedom, as a state of moksha. And what we see again and again in the Upanishads is attentiveness to the power of the breath. In the Rig Veda, one of the great deities, external deities, is Vayu, the wind. And in the Upanishads, which also honors the wind, in the Upanishads, segment after segment, story after story, tells of the centrality of breath, the connection between breath and mind, the connection between breath and speech, and building on that Vedic concept that through our speech we create the world, the Upanishads caution, be careful of your speech, use your speech wisely. Now, those earliest Upanishads have been dated from about 2,800 years ago. And in fact, as we look at the early Buddhist literature from stories that get told and then eventually written down, so at first oral tradition and then later written tradition when the technology of the script comes with the Phoenicians via the trade routes into India. That happened about 2500 BC, but it did not be, it was not taken up by the religious folks or even within the monasteries for a couple hundred years because of the preference for oral tradition. And what happened was remarkably, this young man, Siddhartha Gautama, reportedly born and raised in what is now southern Nepal. Can you date him as well? I wish we could date him. Uh, some people say, yeah, sometime um, between 2500 and 2400 be before now. So sometime around, you know, 500, 400, 350 BC, that he... Um, was born well, well after the earlier Upanishads. Yes, yes, yes. And as part of his story, as it comes to be told, he would visit these wise people and studied with some people whose names sound so similar to the names of the people named as sages within the Upanishads. Mm. And he would study, he would listen, he would practice. And then he would say, oh, I still don't feel that I really know. And he kept on this quest for truth and meaning for six years. And then at the age of 35, had this grand awakening under a tree, many hundred miles to the south in a place called Bodh Gaya, the place of awakening. And the world has never been the same. (laughs) 
Can you share with us a brief overview of the Buddha story from the beginning, like some of his milestones and some of the important concepts he explored along the way, and then how we end up arriving at texts like the Satipatthana Sutta, which tends to be translated as the four foundations of mindfulness. What I'm ultimately trying to follow the thread from what you've shared so far to up to mindfulness as we know it at a popular level today. So the Buddha, born to a prominent family, given the name Siddhartha Gautama, the one who is, has achieved his goal, and slated for greatness. And in fact, when he was born, it is said that the Brahmins assembled and they looked at the body of this newborn and told the father that this child carries 32 remarkable signs of greatness. And if you work it right, if you rear him properly, he will become the ruler of the entire known world. And if you do it right, he will become the greatest religious teacher ever known on the planet. And the dad wanted that fame and glory and power and far-flung wealth. And he pledged he would do everything to make certain that his son entered and ruled all aspects of the material, provided for him every pleasure, and it backfired. And at the age of 29, that young prince broke out of the cocoon of comfort and saw, for the first time, sick people, old people, corpses, and saw, for the very first time, a meditator. And he resolved to leave the princely life behind, to leave, in fact, his newborn son behind, and for six years wandered, asking questions, learning how to meditate. He wandered to the south, sat under the Bodhi tree, and had, through the course of one evening, the spontaneous memory of 550 past lives that accounted for all of the stickiness and the ickiness, all of his accumulated desires. And he remembered having been a tree. He remembered having been a bird. He remembered having been all manner of human beings. And he vowed never again to let himself get caught up within all of these layers of karma. And when he broke free, he sat there under the tree for seven days and seven nights. 
one can visit and sit under that very tree in Bodhgaya, India. The same genetic material has been maintained for almost 2,500 years. And then he got up and he walked and sat for another period of time. And then after 49 days of silence, of steady walking, he landed in Sarnat and was greeted by some of his former companions. And he said to them, I'm awakened. I did it. I'm free. And they, they didn't believe him at first. And then one of them said, well, sit down. Tell us what you learned. And there's a magnificent stupa on that very site. It's a pilgrimage site not too far from the city of Benares. And he laid out this eightfold path. And in talking about the beginning of the path, he said, we have to awaken to the right view. And then he gives so many pieces of advice that land eventually in this place called Samadhi in this place, which is the culmination of meditation. And what we find is that that was the beginning. And then for 45 years, he wandered, he traveled, he would stay in one place during the rainy season. And one of his cousins, a cousin called Ananda, accompanied him had a razor-sharp memory, and he piled story after story after story within his memory, and then told all of the monks after the Buddha had departed everything that the Buddha had said. And we literally have more than a hundred published volumes that came from the mouth of Buddha into the ears of Ananda transmit it therefrom to the ears of the assembled monks and nuns. And now we have this remarkable resource for human psychology, this remarkable, remarkable resource for learning about how meditation works. The primary Buddhist teaching, that primary right view says that nothing lasts forever, that at the core of our desire for things to last forever is sort of a, a yearning, a feeling of being uncomfortable, of wanting more, sometimes straight out pain and suffering and that we need to interrogate all of those conditions. And as we pay attention, we see that there is no candidate for the pain. That this thing that we have conjured within ourselves to be self, in fact, is a bunch of pieces put together, but always in a state of flux, always wanting to hold on, wanting things to be a particular way. 
and that's the root of our suffering. And what the Buddha taught is we can release from that. So in a text called the Satipatthana, he offers a pathway to meditate. And it comes all the way down into the Zazen breath counting. It comes all the way back in terms of where does it all begin? Our experience begins in the human body. And for many years, I have sat within the Theravada Vipassana mindfulness tradition, various different teachers. And it begins quite often with a body scan. And as a teacher of meditation, what I often do is start right there. Where is the body? How is the body arrayed? An invitation could be put forward to put your feet on the floor. An invitation could be extended to sit cross-legged, maybe go into the lotus pose or a half lotus pose. And then note the sensations of the body, the connection points and move into an awareness of the feeling tone, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, simply noting rather than judging or evaluating. And then my own practice includes breath counting as part of that awareness, and then eventually comes the part that needs a whole lot more building out, which is an embrace of dharma. Okay? And this is the part that uh, requires those long retreats. And this is the part where the full circle loop of self and world coagulates, perhaps coalesces, and perhaps results in what Whitehead would call a moment of concrescence. And what is the Dharma? Hey, the Buddha taught, dukkha, humans suffer. Anitya, things change. Anatta, or anatman, is that as long as you're holding on, you're focused on ego, the ego must be released. And those teachings then lead to a committed way of life, to right livelihood, to taking vows. And I remember my, ent my formal entry into the yoga path, per se, was the adoption and reflection upon something that I innately knew was correct, an adoption of a gentle way of worldly engagement. The Sanskrit for this is ahimsa, 
which means nonviolence, which means consider how your words and actions affect others. Be attentive to the foods one eats, to, in our case, the cars that we drive. And their very first vow informed the building of the Buddhist community at its best. And then the Buddha taught four other great vows as ways, pathways to cultivate mindfulness. And the second vow, a vow embraced and actualized by Mahatma Gandhi, is the vow of satya, is the vow what Gandhi called satyagraha, holding, grasping, okay, graha, grasping the truth, investigating the truth, interrogating the truth, speaking the truth, moving toward the authentic. And then the third great world-shaping vow is asteya, also known as acharya, and it says, take nothing that does not belong to you. Some people say, stop stealing. And then as we reflect, we see, oh, we steal in lots of different ways with our consumer habits, with the time that we take from other people, with the pencils we walk away with, with the office supplies that we sort of think should be our own. Okay, all of these small and large ways in which we steal. And then for the Buddha, it was very interesting, this issue of human corporeality. And he himself had given up family life. And even though his son later came to live with him and his sister-in-law, who had raised his son, his wife had died shortly after the birth of their first child, his sister-in-law and his um, and her court, the women from, from his prior life formed an order of nuns. And all of them decided to move their energy away from the building of family, away from the expression of sexuality into a life of chastity. So that in those early years, to become a Buddhist meant that you became a Buddhist monk or that you became a Buddhist nun. And this adherence to the vow known as brahmacharya required a very profound and life-changing vow. And then the fifth vow was the vow of no intoxicants. And of course, all manner of alcohol, and it's called cannabis indicus because it does come from India. All of those substances which cloud the mind were to be renounced by the monks and the nuns within the Buddhist order. And as the centuries have gone on, uh, lay people have said, hey, we want a piece of this too. 
and lay people eventually learned to meditate and became very reflective about how to integrate a vowed life, a mindful life, into a worldly life. And that's a later chapter of Buddhism, and it's a chapter that's playing itself right now, playing itself out right now with the mindfulness movement. And can you address for a moment how, though, as many of us know, mindfulness as having to do with uh, the, the goal or the aim of stress reduction or experiencing more calm, living in the present, while uh, it's all those and, and more uh, in this one text that we've been referring to, uh, you know, that is part of it, but certainly not the main event and that it's, it's a means to an end. And it seems like it, it would seem remiss not to address this concept of liberation at this point and how yeah. important it, it, it really seems to be as part of this project. Yeah. At the core, from the beginning, the Buddha taught a pathway to human freedom. He called it nirvana. Other people have called it moksha, kaivalyam. It requires an undoing of all of the karmas from the past, a releasing of those karmas in order literally to be free. It required a change in lifestyle. It required an abandoning of creature comfort. No longer were the monks or nuns allowed to even sleep on a cushioned bed. And I have visited the monasteries, like at Nalanda, where from the archaeology, we know they just slept on slabs of stone and a little pillow would be carved so that they could be on their side. And this life of austerity was required in order to undo all of the difficulties that had piled on and densified the experience of these humans who were seeking release. And as we look at how that has translated into contemporary life, I'll give just a couple of examples. Um, teachers that I have known and worked with. Um, Trudy Goodman was um, a young mother, graduate student on her way to become a psychotherapist, family psychotherapist, and had various tragedies befall her life. And like so many people in their early 20s, just sought something that could calm her down. And she started sitting in Zen style, like I had started sitting Zen style a little bit earlier, but at a younger age. And she found great relief. And she went up and visited other meditators. And these meditators were Sharon Salzberg and Jack Cornfield, who had undergone similar difficulties. Sharon 
whose books are so popular, um, like myself, had been a student at uh, State University of New York at Buffalo. She didn't go to Long Island for her meditation. She went all the way to Asia. And she just has these wonderful accounts of sitting, very, very difficult circumstances, and just seeking some way to quell that yearning to get out of the pain. Jack Cornfield, similar. And this group of young people having entered the monastic life for a fixed period of time, returned and started teaching, as had Philip Kaplow, started teaching the meditation skills, providing a way for the wisdom that they had gleaned to become not only accessible as technique, but to become meaningful in light of the exigencies of modern life. And quite often, it truly meets the needs of people. And sometimes it may uh, be criticized as uh, trivialization or an appropriation or something that uh, may not be fully genuine. But to the extent that the Buddha said, people suffer, to the extent that modern people say, I'm suffering, relief can be found in the meditative process. And, and I'm, I'm hearkening back to my own experience where that 13-year-old with the twitchy body and the monkey mind, and we know where teenage minds can go, found a glimmer of it's going to be okay. And a little bit of a relief that whatever it was that I was all wrapped up about wasn't really that important. And the big scale, or I should say the little scale of human breath, that that solace, that that solace is priceless, it's precious, and I'm not going to say it's a commodity, but it can be taught. Traditionally, uh, and a very interesting study uh, from many decades ago of monastics within Southeast Asia showed that large percentage had nameable mental illness that drove them into the monastery. And that's just, you know, part of the human condition. If you hurt, you go where you think you can get relief. And this has proven, meditation has been proven effective at bringing relief, usually momentary, but moving people toward a practice where they can sustain an equanimity that helps them see their way through great difficulty.
And I'm going to tell a little story as an example. Uh, for about 15 years, actually, it's closer to 20 years, I've been sitting every Thursday morning. This is a Thursday. And I actually, we take turns leading the meditation. It's, you know, a dozen or 15 people. We're on Zoom now. We used to sit in a beautiful room in Santa Monica. And we noticed that someone had beamed in from an unusual environment. And one of the members of this Sangha meditated post-surgery from her hospital bed. Mm. And she knew that the collective force of people of good intent would give her a little bit more energy to make it through yet another difficult day. And this profound technique, which can be supported in all manner, all manner of activities, including pranayama, to really sort of heighten the acuity of attention to the breath, through asana, to release those sticky parts in the body that sometimes have been habituated over years and perhaps even over an entire lifetime that call out for some release. And these releases are more than simply tissue releases. They also become emotional releases. And the psychological endurance required to sit meditation retreat, okay, 45 minutes on the cushion, 10 minutes off up walking, five-minute tea break, do it over again, then sit and listen to a talk, and then go have some lunch, and then come and sit on that cushion for another 45 minutes, walk for another 10 minutes, go back and work on the theme, eventually go talk to the retreat leader and say, ah, what's going on with my life? And then go back on the cushion. I mean, this is rigorous, and this is nothing to trifle with. I mean, this is, this is not a trivial endeavor. And the combination of intense experience and daily practice builds resiliency and invites people to really consider and reconsider every aspect of life. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider at Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the Glow Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.